Welcome, Politified, to our second official Walter Block interview. Uh, it is my pleasure to introduce you all to Dr. Walter Block. If you don't know who Walter Block is, well, what are you doing, first of all? Um, you can find any of his works on the Mises Institute, Mises Wire, and the Mises Bookstore, any of his books. He's a libertarian economist and economic theorist. Welcome, everybody. Walter Block. Walter, how are you doing today? Pretty good, thanks. Uh, thanks Welcome for having me again. It's always fine. a pleasure. It's it's just as much of a pleasure for us to have you. So we're gonna have a few questions uh, from first of all from from Chris, and I think we're just gonna get right into it. Uh, yeah, the first question really is, uh, you know, when we last had you on, we did not uh, have Biden just as the president. So what has been your reaction to Biden? Do has it been worse or better than you expected? Has he done anything that shocked you? Well, that's a good question. Um... I guess this is roughly what I expected. Uh, we're going toward California or New York State. If he had his druthers, the whole country would be like California or New York State or maybe Illinois or any of those other uh, sort of um, blue states. Or maybe uh, he's aiming at um, some of the European uh, countries, the social democratic European countries. My fear, though, is that we'll go the route of uh, Venezuela or, or North Korea uh, or something like that, because uh, he, he's sort of more of a figurehead than a, a leader. I mean, I think not only is he physically debilitated, but mentally debilitated. And who's pulling the strings? It, it seems to me that I don't know the specifics, but sort of um, uh, AOC and Bernie and people like that. And and they're, you know, hardcore socialists. And uh well, I, I don't know. Do I want to say they're worse than uh, the governors of uh, California or New York? I'm not sure. Uh, uh, I, I don't think they're aiming at Venezuela. Uh, I'm sure they're not. I'm, I'm sure their goal is California, New York, or, or some of the European countries, France, Italy, uh, Germany, what have you. Uh, the fear is that the, the whole thing can go uh, to the devil or whatever, the, uh, you know, go down the tubes maybe would be a better way to put it. Um, I, I mean, th this thing with COVID, 1.9 trillion, and something like 15% had something to do with COVID, and the rest was just um, bailing out uh, New York and California and, and, and all of those states. And um, uh, I mean, things weren't so bad until LBJ got going with his great society. I mean, I'm a big fan of um, uh, Charles Murray's book, Losing Ground. And he says that the Great Society pretty much broke up the black family. And, and you could read uh, Walter Williams or Thomas Sowell on that. Well, what we now have is, is sort of like the Great Society on speed or uh, squared or cubed or something like that. I mean, uh, they're really going berserk, uh, you know, tossing all sorts of money at people so that they don't work. Uh, I don't know how you can have a, much of a recovery if people are being uh, paid so much, paid more uh, to, to not work than to work. I mean, most people are led by an invisible hand. And, you know, if it's in their self-interest not to work and get the government dole, well, that's what they'll do. Well, but that's hardly good for the economy. So I'm not a big fan of Biden. And but that, that's just the economics of it. There's just so much more. Um uh, this thing, I'm, I'm a university professor, and um, uh, the rule used to be before, um, uh, before uh, Trump on campuses that uh, you have to believe women who complain about sexual uh, harassment or whatever, and um, the presumption, the burden of proof is on the victim to show that, uh, rather on the perpetrator to show that he's, that he's innocent, whereas uh, it should be the opposite way around. And you're not allowed to confront your accuser. You're not allowed to bring a lawyer. You're not allowed to tape record the, um, the proceedings. And, and they're going back to that. And then, you know, on campus, we have all sorts of, uh, what is it, um, uh, safe spaces and trigger warnings and um, uh, intersectionality and BLM and feminism. And, and um, there's a lot of uh, conservative and uh, libertarian professors who are being fired because of this, because they think that, um, you know, this is the, the new ruling, the, the way that things are gonna go. So I'm not really a happy camper. On the other hand, I, I, I'm a ebullient kind of person. I always uh, think the glass is half full or more. And um, this will just increase, shift the demand curve to the right for my services <laughs> because, uh, 
free enterprise people such as myself will now be even more needed. I mean, uh, under Trump, you know, he wasn't really good on foreign, uh, on trade and stuff like that, but he never started any new wars and he uh, was pretty good on regulation and lowering taxes, whereas um, Biden is, is the very opposite. So uh, the need for libertarian and Austrian theory is even greater now. So I suppose I could look at it positively uh, in that way. And also, I have another question to add on to that. Did you have any reaction to the uh, many libertarians who were uh, ostensibly like supporting Biden whenever they rejected Trump so hard? Uh, do, do you have any thought on that? Well, I don't think any libertarians really. Well, maybe you'll you'll uh, prove me wrong, but I, I, there were conservatives who uh, supported uh, Biden because they hated Trump so much. I don't know that there are any libertarians that actually supported Biden. Maybe they supported Biden vis-a-vis -vis Trump, which is not good because, you know, I uh, have the honor of uh, starting two groups along with several colleagues. I started them in uh, 2015 when the race was between uh, Hillary and, and Trump. One was a, a thing called, what was it? Uh, libertarians for Trump. And the other was scholars for Trump. And why libertarians for Trump? Well, because um, I thought that Hillary would be worse. And not that I favor Trump. I mean, Trump is no Ron Paul. He's no Rand Paul, but you know, better than Hillary. And uh, the idea here was that if you're in a, a blue state like uh, California, uh, don't, don't vote for Donald because Donald's gonna lose big anyway. So you might as well vote for the libertarian because I am a member of the libertarian party and I wanna promote liberty in that way. And on the other hand, if you're in a red state like my own, Louisiana, well, again, don't um, uh, vote for Donald because Donald's gonna win a landslide and he doesn't need your vote. But if you're in a purple state, uh, say Pennsylvania or what have you, uh, well then, then uh, Donald's gonna need your vote. So then vote for Donald. So I, I thought we'd have our cake and eat it too. We could support the LP and not get Hillary. Um, this didn't really work out too well with the two senatorial races from Virginia, where uh, uh, this guy, um, I forget his name, um, uh, he, he knocked out one at uh, Purdue. He knocked out Purdue. He got 2% of the vote and Purdue got like 49.9% of the vote. And uh, so the libertarians were spoilers there. Um, so I, I, um, I, I, I favor the LP and, and I, oh, and the other group was um, uh, Scholars for Trump. For Libertarians for Trump, we got about 5,000 signatures. Scholars for Trump, the idea was only redneck idiot morons would vote for Trump. So you have a PhD or a medical degree or something like that to be in Scholars for Trump. We got about 150 uh, signatures. So um, again, I'm not a Trump supporter. I, I certainly am not, a, what is it? Uh, hate, hate Trump or something like that. It's just that I thought Trump never was Trumpers. better than Hillary. I'm sorry? The never Trumpers? The never Trumper. I'm not a never Trumper, but I'm not a real wild-eyed uh, wild maniac in favor of Trump. I'm, I mean, I have my MAGA hat, but um, uh, I, I, you know, if it was Rand Paul versus Trump, uh, there's no question. But if it's Trump versus Biden or Trump versus Hillary, well, then, you know, Trump is the lesser of two evils. And, you know, I get a lot of trouble with a lot of libertarians who say, well, you shouldn't vote. And my answer to that is, well, suppose we were slaves and the master said we could vote for overseer goody or overseer baddie. Overseer goody will beat us up once a month. Overseer baddie will beat us every day. Well, I'm going to vote for overseer goody because he's only going to beat us up um, once a month. And not that I favor overseer goody. It's just vis-a-vis -vis overseer baddie. Our next question is a little bit more more lighthearted than, than the first one is the first one is a little serious um and our next question is do you have any favorite memories of people such as hoppa tom woods or any other influential libertarians oh uh yeah well chris is a mucho serioso we got to watch out for him <laughs> uh well hans and and tom are buddies of mine um i um uh, one of my um I don't know, great fun is I, I once attended his um, a seminar in um, Bodrum, um, Turkey, uh, on the west coast of Turkey, and, and Hans put on a magnificent show. I'm a big, big fan of Hans in many, many ways. I, I think he is magnificent in his argument from argument or argumentation ethics, which I think is the best, um, how shall I say it, justification of the non-aggression principle, which is the foundation of libertarianism. 
Uh, so I'm a big fan of his. I'm a big fan of Tom Woods. I mean, Tom Woods, I think, is pretty much the best public speaker in the libertarian movement. He is just magnificent. Um, and, and his many books, uh, uh, the um, what do you call it, the... Um, the 1921, um, um, what do you call it? Uh, Depression, a, a great book. Uh, uh, one of his books I use in my, uh, my course on economics and religion. Uh, the one on, I forget the title, but uh, do Catholics have Church to be- Church and Market? Co- That's it, right. Church and Market. I, I'm calling it the commie, the Christians have to be commies. That was uh, my recollection of the title, but uh, I think you're more accurate there. So I'm a, a big fan of uh, Tom and, um, and uh, Hans, but I, uh, I don't like to brag, but I'll brag a little. I'm one of the few people alive today who can say that he actually shook the hand of uh, Ludwig von Mises. And I never washed my hands since. It's a little dirty, but if you shake my hand, uh, you'll channel Mises. And also I was uh, sort of buddies with Hayek. I uh, played chess with him and and I guess most of all, I was a friend of Murray Rothbard for, I don't know, 30 years or so. Uh, so uh, those are three of my heroes. And um, I don't know, I was sort of also a buddy of um, uh, Robert Nozick, um, met him at Murray's living room and uh, the whole living room crowd of, of Murray's um, that I was part of. And now I'm associated with the Mises Institute, which has got a whole of, uh, bunch of um, eminent uh, Austro-Libertarians. So I've been very lucky in my choice of friends and colleagues and, and co-authors. I'm co-authored with a lot of these people. I think I'm the only co-author of Murray Rothbard. I, and most of the stuff he ever did was, um, oh, and I have to brag further about Murray. Um, Murray Rothbard never won the medal, the, the Rothbard Medal of Freedom. I did. Ha ha. <laughs> Uh, I believe Ben, you, you're actually mentioning Robert Nozick. Ben, I believe you had a question on him, right? Yeah, I did. I actually didn't know that you were friends with Robert Nozick, but uh, I was wondering what your thoughts on Anarchy, State, and Utopia. I actually have the book uh, right here. I think it's a very oh, interesting book. Well, it's uh, it's a magnificent book. I mean, look, he's not an anarchist. I'm an anarchist, so we diverge. But uh, by gum and by golly, that is, uh, I, I think he was a, made a full professor at Harvard at age 28. Uh, or 27 or 29, which is very, very young to be made a full professor anywhere. And, and you know, Harvard is uh, one of the most prestigious schools on the planet. Uh, he is um, just a riveting personality, a uh, brilliant, brilliant man. Uh, my favorite quote from his uh, short quote, uh, it goes something like, what is it, Chris, you'll help me with the exact quote. Uh, um, we favor uh, capitalist acts between consenting adults. That's it. Capitalist acts between consenting adults. See, the lefties are always saying we favor uh, anything between consenting adults. And uh, what Robert Nozick is saying, well, how about capitalist acts between consenting adults, buying, selling, renting, lending, whatever. Uh, why, why don't we favor that too? It's sort of a way of really digging it in uh, to the left. Um, uh, I, uh, I mean, the, the book is just magnificent, except he, he is not an anarchist, and I think the anarchist is the only correct libertarian position. Now, look, the way I see libertarianism, the anarchists make up maybe one or two percent of all people calling themselves libertarian, whereas uh, the other three groups, so that would be the um, Ayn Rand limited government people, the, the Ron Paul constitutionalists, and then the classical liberals of, uh, say, Hayek and Friedman, um, uh, as we go down the list, the government gets to do more and more. Those, those are like 30, 30 and 30% of libertarianism and, and, and anarcho-capitalists are, are very few. But I think it's the correct position. And, and you asked me about Robert Nozick and what he says is that, um, what is it that the, um, how does he put it? The leading, I'm sorry? Do you, uh, do you mean the night watchman state? Yeah, uh, what he says is that the leading um, defense agency is going to have to ensure that the other defense agencies are uh, kosher. You know that they don't uh, base their decisions on tea leaves or, or uh, flipping a coin. And therefore, the uh, main defense agency has a right to um, compel them not to do that. And therefore, if it's going to compel them, it has to give them some services to be fair. And that's how uh, what he says is that um, uh, through a 
pure market process, if ever we had an anarcho-capitalist society, it would uh, coalesce into a government. And I, I think that's just totally wrong. I mean, you know, well, why should the, uh, the leading defense agency uh, uh, have any better uh, ways of finding criminality than, than the, the smaller ones? And maybe they'll all be equal. And, and if it were true, uh, if, if this uh, coalescing thing, um, uh, centralization thing were true, why do we have around 250 countries right now? Why don't we have... Uh, Two or three, Oceania, you know, the, 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 that that triumph. Or, I mean, the number of countries has been remarkably stable for the last two, three, four hundred years. So, if there were any of this centralizing tendency that, that Robert Nozick sees for defense agencies, if we can extrapolate it to, to countries, we would see fewer and fewer countries until we'd have one world government. Because that's what he really wants in the United States: one one U.S. government. I mean, you can have 50 states, but they're a subsidiary to the central uh, central government. So I think Nozick is out to lunch on that. Um, another uh, problem that I have with Nozick is he he wants to attack Austrian economics. Uh, this was not in his book, but it was in a, in a journal article. And uh, what he said is, look, you, Aust he's not, he wasn't an Austrian, uh, he wasn't even an economist, but boy, oh boy, was he a brilliant economist, even though he wasn't a credentialed economist. And what he said was, look, you, um, you Austrians, you believe in two things and the two things are incompatible. On the one hand, you believe in the supply curve. Well, yeah, we believe in the supply curve, uh, the supply of shoes, supply of um, wheat, supply of uh, copper, whatever. And the whole definition of a supply curve has got homogeneous elements in it. Because if the copper is different, there are two different kinds of copper, then you have two supply curves. If you have one supply curve, it's got to be the same quality of steel, unless maybe the quality of steel didn't matter and, and you could put them all together. Uh, I mean, we do have a supply curve of cars and, and cars are not homogeneous, they are heterogeneous, but for certain purposes, you can count them as, as homogeneous. The point is that if you put them in a supply curve and we believe in supply curves, well, they have to be homogeneous in, in some way. On the other hand, you're against indifference. And uh, that's true. We are also against indifference because we think that the, because you, you can't demonstrate indifference. You, uh, you know, uh, um, Chris, you have a nice checked shirt. You bought that shirt for 20 bucks. Uh, this shows to me as an economist that you valued that shirt at more than 20 bucks when you bought it. So ex ante, you made a profit off of it. And I sold you that shirt. I, I'm the shirt salesman and I have 300 of them and I value them at a dollar each. So I made a $19 profit off of you. We exploited each other. Well, actually, you know, we profited off of each other. Of course, the Marxists would say this mutual exploitation. Boy, aren't they silly. So, but how do you ever demonstrate indifference? Uh, not through human action, uh, Mises would say. I mean, his whole book was um, predicated on human action. So you can't, um, you can't um, um, have indifference. On the other, other hand, the, the word indifference is a perfectly good word in the English language. Um, I, I think one of you was uh, drinking uh, something, maybe a Coca-Cola or something. There you go, a can of um, something. Well, when you bought that can, there were probably um, uh, 50 of them on the shelf in the store. And, um, and I'm happy to say that before you engaged in action, you were indifferent. You didn't care which can, they were all uh, homogeneous, you just grab one. But you're a lazy so-and-so, so, so you grab the, the one that was most convenient because you don't wanna hassle and go around and get one in the back, right? Or if they're piled up, you're not gonna take one from the bottom and topple them all over. So you took one from the top and the front because you're lazy. So the point is, my, po my point in criticizing uh, Nozick is, yes, there is indifference before human action, but when human action occurs, there's no more indifference. So sure, you can have a supply curve and you can attack indifference. We attack indifference curves because, you know, we think that um, uh, indifference uh, um, can't reveal uh, human action or preference. So uh, we Austrians are big into um, preference and uh, human action, and that's incompatible with, um, with um, indifference. So that's my way of reconciling. And I wrote an article uh, um, criticizing um, Robert Nozick. Now it's interesting that Hans attacked me 
uh, and and we he and I got it on 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 in different scripts. We had a back and forth a little bit, but very friendly. I mean, we're we're good buddies. And uh, what Hans said was roughly, yes, yes, I applaud Walter's attempt to um, uh, undermine Nozick's attack on Austrianism, but he didn't do a real good job. We can do a better job. And then he went on to do a better job in his view. And um, Bill Barnett and I uh, wrote a reply to Hans. So, um, but but this, this shows that we're not a cult. I mean, if you're in the Ayn Rand cult, you don't find two, two lieutenants of Randianism. And I, I, I don't know if I'm applauding myself too much to say I'm a lieutenant in the Austrian movement. I think that's okay. And certainly Hans is. Uh, so, so we disagreed. So big deal. You know, I once um, co-authored an article with David Gordon. And I forget what it was, but we disagreed on something and we were co-authors. So we had a little footnote saying, well, you know, David says this, Walter says that, you know, so we're allowed to disagree. Whereas a lot of people like uh, James Buchanan think that Austrianism is a cult. And, and my, um, my PhD uh, advisor, mentor, Gary Becker, once called Austrianism a cult. We're not a cult. We, we can disagree with each other. Yeah, I certainly think that uh, Nozick's arguments are much better than Randy and arguments for a minarchist state. But yeah, I've, I've definitely seen a couple of different responses to it, like Murray Rothbard and uh, even David Friedman did a speech on it. And so speaking of David Friedman, what are your thoughts on non-Austrian utilitarian uh, and anarcho-capitalists like David Friedman? Well, you know, David and his father are, are great libertarians. You know, I, I sometimes uh, people ask me, um, how do you promote libertarianism? What's the best way to promote libertarianism? And my answer is, well, let's look at the uh, three people who've had more success in promoting libertarianism than any other three people. And the three people would obviously be Ayn Rand for my generation, Ron Paul for your generation, and Milton, three, Milton Friedman in third place. Now, I don't think Milton Friedman was a better libertarian or a better economist than Murray Rothbard or Ludwig von Mises. It's just that he had a bigger mega, megaphone so he converted more people. But uh, what I get from them, they were very different people. I mean, I'm, uh, uh, Ron Paul is a sweetie pie. I mean, he, he just sort of exudes goodness. It sort of comes off of him like an aura. And if you called Ayn Rand a sweetie pie, she'd smack you in the face. You know, she was not a sweetie pie. Uh, I mean, she was delightful. And, and, and by the way, I'm very grateful to her for converting me to libertarianism. I was a pinko socialist along with my, my high school buddy, uh, Bernie Sanders. But getting back to the question, I'm a professor. I'm never supposed to answer a question directly. I have to go off here and there. So uh, I was asked about David Friedman and now I'm bringing in Milton Friedman and they are both um, neoclassical economists, right-wing neoclassical economists. Of course, um, you know, Milton Friedman once said, we're all Keynesians now. <laughs> That's something that you're not gonna hear from anyone at the Mises Institute, I'll tell you that. Um, uh, David Friedman is an anarchist. Murray Rothbard once wrote an essay on uh, attacking David and they said he'd rather be involved with a, um, a limited government person who hates the state because the state went above where they think he, the state should be than David Friedman who favors no state whatsoever but doesn't hate the state. David Friedman has no uh, visceral um, hatred for the state. He just sort of thinks, well, you know, the state's inefficient and the market would be more efficient, but uh, but if it was the other way around, he'd, he'd favor um, statism, whereas um, people. Um, uh, uh, so David Friedman is, a, uh, I think, a good economist, but he, he's a um, what do you call it? A, a neoclassical like t take antitrust. David Friedman and um, Milton Friedman all agree that there is such a thing as market failure. Um, monopoly, externalities, public goods, this, that, and the other, they just think that the um, government failure is even worse. Whereas the Austrians say that there ain't no such thing as, as um, market failure. So uh, I applaud David Friedman. I, I think he's a very articulate guy, uh, very well-spoken, uh, a good, uh, good uh, libertarian, maybe not for the right reasons. He's more of a utilitarian than he is a, a deontologist. I once asked uh, Milton Friedman, from whence does your passion for justice spring? 
And he said, I hate that expression. I have no passion for justice. Justice is uh, monstrous. We shouldn't uh, think about justice because uh, people start fighting because they disagree on justice. You're not going to hear Murray Rothbard say anything like that. I mean, Murray Rothbard, uh, his middle name was Justice. I, well, it was Newton, but you know, I'm, I'm renaming him. Uh, justice was really his middle name. Uh, I'm sure he wouldn't uh, object to me uh, saying something like that. Uh, I, I once... Uh, uh, David Friedman uh, also has an attack on the non-aggression principle. In his chapter 43 of his book, um, Machinery of Freedom, he starts in with this, this analysis that, what is it? Um, if I shine a flashlight into your house, or, or rather I, I just uh, light up a cigarette in my house and, and there's a light that you can see because I, I drew, drew the curtains. Well, that's not a rights violation. But how about if I get a bigger and bigger flashlight and I shine it on your house and eventually the flashlight is so powerful that it, it sets a fire. And um, um, therefore the non-aggression principle is wrong. I don't know how he gets that, but in any case, I wrote a, a nice article, I think it was in the Journal of Libertarian Studies and I sent it to him and I said, David, you know, um, I'm attacking you. Uh, how about writing a reply? And, you know, we'll get it on, uh, not physically, but, you know, <laughs> uh, let, you know, let's debate about this stuff. And, and he declined to do that. Uh, so I guess he's too busy with other things that he thinks is more important. So I give David Friedman an A minus, anarcho-capitalist, a pretty, very free market economist, uh, a libertarian, even though utilitarian, uh, like, uh, like Hayek, um, uh, and, and like Mises, not a deontological one uh, like Murray Rothbard, but, you know, uh, A minus is pretty good mark. Yeah, what he told me is that he's sort of a deontologist, but he doesn't know how to justify uh, his ethics. So he kind of goes to utilitarianism. Well, he's one of the he's one of the most bitter critics of Hans Hoppe's argument from argument, and and that I mean, if, if somebody says, "Well, yes, I'm I favor the non-aggression principle, I favor deontology, but I don't know how to justify it," I'd say, "Go read Hans." Yeah. Well, he read Hans and he rejected it totally, and he said it was you know screwy or I'm putting words I, in his mouth. I think I he was like uh, in the symposium, right, the Liberty Symposium back in '86 uh, when Hoppe wrote about it. Um, yeah. Yeah, he, his argument, I forget his argument, but I remember he responded very negatively to it. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm a big fan of Hans on that. Um, our, our, our next question is, um, is actually in relation to the Mises Institute. And we were wondering what role you think the Mises Institute has played in the advancement of libertarian principles and, and your, or your generation of, of libertarians and of course, in this current generation of libertarianism. Well, you know, there are other, uh, Lou doesn't like to call it a think tank, but I don't know what else to call the Mises Institute and the Reason Foundation and, and Cato Institute and CEI and, and all the 50 state think tanks other than a think tank uh, or the Fraser Institute. I used to work for it in, in, um, in uh, California. All I could say is that if you put those in and call that an industry, whatever the industry is, think tanks or I don't know, um, educational institutes or something like that, uh, the Mises Institute gets an A plus and nobody else gets even a, well, others might get a B, B plus, but nobody gets an A minus. Uh, there's a big gap uh, between the Mises Institute, in my view, and every other group. Uh, the Mises Institute is, is the gold standard of, of um, uh, institutes, free market institutes, call it that, instead of think tanks. Uh, they are utterly magnificent. Uh, they uh, have a, a bunch of um, conferences like uh, the conference, the Austrian Economic Research Center. There's going to be the Mises uh, University. Uh, there'll be the uh, Libertarian Scholars Conference that Joe Salerno puts on in New York City uh, once a year. Uh, they are a treasure trove of um, um, uh, books and articles that they make available for free to people. But th that's just quantity. Let's talk quality. I mean, uh, these other groups, they compromise in all sorts of things. I mean, the, the reason people and the Cato people, yeah, you know, but, you know, uh, yes, we're for free trade, but, you know, we just can't have a unilateral declaration of free trade with everybody. That would be too radical. Um, uh, I, I'm sort of not a big fan of uh, the Reason Foundation, because this guy, uh, Gillespie, um, 
when I got into it with the New York Times over voluntary slavery, uh, the New York Times was interviewing about uh, slavery. And, you know, obviously I oppose real slavery, but I concocted this thing of uh, voluntary slavery. And they accused me of actual supporting actual slavery. Can you imagine that? And uh, Nick Gillespie uh, reported this. And then uh, one time I had a debate with him and he wanted to shake my hand. And I said, yeah, I really can't shake your hand because, you know, you, you said that I favored slavery. And he said, oh, I apologize. I said, yeah, but, you know, you're just doing it now in front of me and two or three other people. You, you publicly did this. How about doing it publicly? And he didn't promise that he would do that. So I couldn't shake his hand. Well, you know, any and, and then, you know, uh, Ron Paul is a litmus test. If you like Ron Paul, you can't be all bad. I don't care if you're an ax murderer. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not serious. <laughs> but if you like Ron Paul, you're, you're pretty good. And, and if you don't like Ron Paul, you know, <laughs> it's a litmus test. Uh, you know, you could probably come up with exceptions, but by gum and by golly, Ron Paul is, he's not a doctor. He's a saint. For, look, I, I changed Murray Newton Rothbard's middle name. I'm changing uh, Ron Paul's title. Uh, Ron is a saint. And what's the view of the um, reason people uh, on Ron Paul? Negative, come on. I mean, you know, <laughs> that, that's crazy. And the Cato people. Yeah. Well, you, don't have, oh, you, you don't have to ask what the view of the Mises people is on Ron Paul. It's uh, very, very positive. So these are reasons why I, I would favor the Mises Institute vis-a-vis -vis any of these other groups. Now there are state groups, uh, like uh, we have one in, in Louisiana uh, the Pelican Institute, and, and it's a fine group, and they don't really get involved in these uh, in these uh, internecine warfare things. So I'm, I'm, you know, I might give them an A minus or something, but they're much smaller and and mainly focused on uh, Louisiana or Arkansas uh, uh, interests, uh, things like that. Yeah, and uh, I, I'm pretty sure Reason also wrote a couple articles about Murray um, Rothbard and uh, Hoppe being alt right. But uh, either way, moving on to the to the next point, which kind of relates to this, uh, what are your thoughts kind of on the division that a, a lot of like uh, left libertarians often make on uh, uh, with the Mises Institute calling them racist or fascist or or even I'm doing the same to Hoppe and Rothbard, all, all the BS essentially? Well, uh, I just wanted to mention one more thing that I thought about on the previous question, and I'll get to that. And that is what about the Libertarian Party? Well, I've been in the Libertarian Party since before it started nationally. I ran for office in 1969 for the New York State Assembly. My motto was disassemble the assembly, you know, get rid of the, get rid of the assembly. Uh, what's the uh, uh, Libertarian Party view on Ron Paul? Well, they start making gratuitous attacks on Ron Paul. That's not good. So, okay, now let's get, uh, you know, the Mises Institute is uh, supposedly anti-Semitic and anti-women and anti-Black and anti-this and anti-whatever, you know. Uh, they're, oh, well, they're not exactly politically correct, and I'm not exactly politically correct either. But the, this whole thing, I mean, take the anti-Semitism thing. Who is the Mises Institute named after? Mises. Get what, guess what religion Mises was? <laughs> Jewish. Um, uh, if the Mises Institute, look, I'm changing everyone's name, so I'm going to now change the Mises Institute, and I'm going to call it the Mises Rothbard Institute. Well, what, what religion was Murray? <laughs> Jewish. I'm Jewish. I'm associated with uh, the Mises Institute. David Gordon is Jewish. Uh, there must be four or five other people uh, in the top 15. Uh, maybe one third of all the people involved in the Mises Institute are Jews. Now, look, um, uh, now they're, they're supposed to be anti- Oh, so that, 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 that's crazy anti-Semitism. Anti-women, that's nonsense. There, there are many uh, women who write for the, uh, for the uh, Mises Institute. And uh, it's true, there are very few blacks do, but, the, but uh, people like Ron, uh, like um, um, uh, Thomas Sowell and Walter Williams and uh, Jason Riley, uh, namely the black uh, conservatives, uh, black, well, uh, black libertarians. Well, Sol and, and, and Williams weren't really good on war and foreign policy, but boy, boy, oh boy, were they good on, um, on racism and sexism and discrimination and stuff like that. Uh, the Mises people would support them. The Mises Institute does support them. Well, if the Mises Institute is racist and hates all black people, well, um, what about uh, Sol and, and, and uh, Walter Williams and, and all these other people? 
Um, uh, Lipton Matthews, a, a new uh, young black man, is writing for them regularly. Uh, that's not the Ku Klux Klan. The Ku Klux Klan doesn't allow blacks in there. Uh, the Muse Institute welcomes black people. It welcomes purple people. Um, the, when I was a kid, there was a, 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 what was it, a rock and roll song about the flying purple people eater or something like that. If there were people from Mars who favored the free enterprise system, the Mises Institute would, uh, would support them. So I think that these um, um, uh, criticisms are, are just nonsense on a stick. Speaking of Lipton Matthews, I actually know him. He's a good friend of mine. He's a great guy. Um, but uh, I guess who's that? I, I didn't hear the, Continuing on uh, Lipton Matthews, the, uh, oh, the guy yes. who's running for the Mises Institute. Yeah. Yes. Uh, but uh, going on uh, the points of divergence from the Mises Institute, what are your thoughts on the uh, full versus fractional reserve banking and like pro fractional reservers like um, Selgin or Michael J. Hoffman? I don't know if you, if you know of his new book. Uh, Michael J. Hoffman, who is a uh, wrote Monetary Kaletics or something like that. Yeah, or or Larry White would be another person. Um, yeah. Is, um, mm -hmm. Well, I am not a big fan of fractional reserve banking. I think a fractional reserve banking is uh, fraudulent, even if everybody knows of uh, you know what's going on there. Even if it's uh, look, uh, suppose I, uh, Chris, I'm now going to sell you a square circle for twenty bucks. Want to buy one? Well, <laughs> I don't care if we agree to buy a square circle or sell a square circle. You can't sell a square circle. And I think that fraction reserve banking has got some of the, um, the symbolic logic elements of, of, um, of a square circle. It's a contradiction. Okay, so he, here's, here's the situation. I deposit um, $100 in the Chris Bank. And what do you do, Chris? Well, you, you have, a, say, a fraction reserve of 10%. Okay, so what you do is you give me a um, checking deposit or um, a credit card or something for $100, right? And then what you do is you go to um, Ben and, uh, <laughs> and you lend him uh, $90. And um, you give him a, a, a checking deposit also for $90. And now guess what? It used to be $100 and that is $190. And now you uh, lend um, uh, $80 or $81 because we're keeping a 10% and you uh, lend it to Liam. And now there's uh, 100 plus 90 plus 80, $270. And you know, uh, if we travel, if we carry this all the way through with a 10% uh, fraction, it would be um, $1,000 uh, out of the 100, namely uh, one over one tenth or, or uh, you go uh, tenfold. Well, you know, you just created money out of the thin air. Uh, I, I don't care if everyone agreed to it. The, this is um, highly problematic. Uh, you're in, in effect stealing money from other people. Uh, so I, I think that this is a um, uh, incompatible with libertarianism. And I think that if we had a, um, uh, what do you call it? A libertarian uh, government, or if we had um, anarcho-capitalists of the Rothbardian variety, it would be prohibited. It just like fraud is prohibited. This is fraudulent. Uh, you, you're not supposed to be creating money out of thin air. And that's what the fraction reserve banking does. So I, I oppose it. Uh, and, and that would be just on deontological grounds. On, uh, on economic grounds, it, it creates the business cycle. It lowers the rate of interest. It, um, uh, it uh, creates inflation or it is inflation. Uh, rather, I spoke, misspoke, it is inflationary and it creates the business cycle. It creates a boom and then you've got to have a bust uh, when you have a boom. So I oppose uh, fraction reserve banking. I, I think Larry um, um, uh, White and um, George Selgin are uh, splendid economists and, and very, very good libertarians. But, you know, we disagree on this one issue. All right, uh, I have another question, or actually two questions, but I'll start with the first one. Uh, what are some of your disagreements with Rothbard, and what were some of his reactions to your disagreements? Murray is a sweetie pie. You know, a lot of people say that Murray broke from them. Murray didn't break from anyone. They broke from Murray. 
I'm, I'm not going to get into the into into the specifics, but I disagree with Murray on four or five things, and uh, never, Murray never came within a million miles of breaking with me. He was very tolerant of me. He would disagree with me a little bit, and you know we would argue about it. But you know he did. Uh, Murray was much more argumentative in writing than in person. When you were in person with him, it was a, sort of a party uh, thing, and his main thing was laughing and and having fun. So we never really got into it. Uh, much, but a little bit, and Murray would do a little bit. For example, voluntary slavery. I think that uh, voluntary slavery is uh, justified. Uh, the example I sometimes use, God forbid my son has a horrible uh, disease and it'll cost 25 million to cure him. And I don't have anything like 25 million. And Ben, you've long wanted me to be a slave of yours. I come to your plantation, I pick cotton, I give you economics lessons. And if you don't like the cut of my jib, you can whip me or kill me. Um, so we make a deal. Give me 25 million and I, I turn the 25 million over to my son's doctors and I save his life. And now I come to your plantation and we both gain from Exante from all voluntary trades. I gain because I value his life more than my freedom. Ben, you gain because you value my servitude more than the 20 million. You're very, very rich. You're like Bill Gates. So this is justified. Murray disagreed. And I've written many an article attacking Murray. Look, my own students sometimes attack me and I try to emulate Murray in every way I can. So when my students disagree with me, I, I try to help them. I try to argue them out of their wrong position. But in many cases, I, I try to get their articles published even though it's an attack on me. Murray's argument mainly was uh, the will. You can't alienate the will. And um, my argument was, I don't care about the will. I'm, I'm talking about when Ben is now beating me. And I, I see Chris, the cop, I say, hey, Chris, cop, uh, Ben is beating me, tell him to stop. And uh, Chris says, well, what's going on? And Ben shows a, a bill of sale for my servitude. And Chris says, well, you know, uh, it looked as if it was assault and battery, but you know, <laughs> you agreed to it, so shut up. Um, so I, I disagree with Murray on that. Um, there are other things I disagreed with him on. Uh, immigration was another one I disagreed with him. Well, actually, Murray changed his views on that. Initially, uh, Murray had this uh, view of open borders. That's my view, open borders. And then later, under the influence of Hans, uh, he uh, uh, changed his mind. I, I believe in open borders because my argument is, look, suppose somebody comes uh, in a helicopter from Mars or from Africa or God knows where, and he lands in the middle of the Rocky Mountains in Wyoming. And by the way, the, 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 the mountaintop in, in Wyoming has never been touched by human feet or human hands. It's virgin territory. And, and this guy from Mars or Africa or Asia or God knows where he's from, uh, Mexico for all I know, he starts planting a, a crop and you know, uh, doing this and that. And now along somebody comes from ICE, you know, the, uh, uh, the, rev uh, the, the people in charge of the border. And they say, uh, you know, uh, show me your papers. And says, huh, papers? I don't have any papers. Um, well, then and they're gonna kick him out. Well, what libertarian uh, law did he violate? He's, he's um, uh, just um, uh, homesteading virgin territory. And, and you're gonna kick him out? Now Hans starts saying, well, you know, the US government really owns that stuff. And I'm saying, Hans, come on, you know, you're a, you're a <laughs> You're a, a, an anarcho-capitalist, what's this government crap? And uh, in any case, this is virgin territory. He's the, and, and Hans has been brilliant, magnificent on Lockean and Rothbardian homesteading theory. So, you know, what law did he violate? Now, um, I also have this other view that um, uh, utilitarianism, do we really want um, 1 trillion Martians to come to the country? No. We really don't want them, even if they're nice guys, because they'll vote the Martian way or whatever way the Martians vote. So how are we gonna keep them out? Compatible with libertarian theory. Well, there's one way we could, namely go and homestead every square inch of, of uh, the United States. Now it's true there's some submarginal land out there like that stuff in the middle of uh, Wyoming in the Rockies. It's submarginal, nobody wants it. it it's not really uh, usable yet with our present technology. But if you're worried about people coming in, go homestead it and then they can't come in, then they're trespassing. But you have to homestead every square inch and not only of uh, land, but also water. Uh, homestead the Mississippi River, homestead Lake Pontchartrain, homestead uh, Lake Superior. 
homestead the Finger Lakes in, in New York State. Uh, and then when every square inch is homesteaded, then, um, then and only then can we keep everyone out unless they're invited in. So those are the two areas where I disagree with Murray. Another one is on Israel. Uh, Murray was not a big fan of Israel. I'm a big fan of Israel. Uh, the, um, the issue is, well, did the Israelis steal Palestinian lands? And uh, Murray goes back, uh, oh, I don't know, to 1870 or so. And he finds that, um, well, the Palestinians were there then and, and the Jews took it over. And uh, my co-authors and I go back 2000 years and we say there weren't any Palestinians there. Like South Africa, you see what happened, uh, South Africa was pretty empty and the first people that homesteaded South Africa were white. And then they had a good economy and then the black people came in to, to work uh, for the uh, whites. And, and the Israelis. There, there weren't that many uh, Palestinians around, but the Jews had a good economy and, and they were prosperous and uh, Palestinians came and worked for them. So that would be a third area where I disagree. A fourth area, and here I disagree with um, not only Murray, but also with Ron. But again, you know, I, I'm friends with Ron. I'm fr I was friends for many years with Murray. You know, just because you disagree doesn't mean you can't be friends. Uh, the fourth area is abortion. And uh, what's going on in abortion? Um, well, you know, Ron Paul is pro-life. Murray Rothbard is pro-choice. You can't get too far further apart from that. They're 180 degrees apart on that. And I have uh, actually two books uh, coming out on, on this issue where I, I think I am correct and both of them are wrong. And my view on this is evictionism. Uh, you see, uh, the pro-life people say you can't evict. Evict means take the fetus out of the uh, woman's stomach. And you can't, certainly you can't kill. Well, you can evict after nine months, but you know, you, you can't, well, that's when the baby normally leaves. Um, uh, so the pro-life people say you can't evict and you can't um, uh, kill. The pro-choice people say you can evict whenever you want and you can also kill because the fetus is just a, a blob or uh, you know something like that. Well, my, my view is uh, when does life start? Life starts with a fertilized egg because the sperm alone and the egg alone will not eventuate into a person. But if you put the sperm and the egg together or the, the sperm goes into the egg and now it's a fertilized egg, you just sit there for nine months and all of a sudden there's gonna be a, a person. Well, I think the person starts right then and there. Um, uh, you know, in the Jewish tradition, you know when um, when human life begins? When the baby graduates medical school? That, that's supposed to be a joke, <laughs> not very funny, but uh, actually it's when the heart beats. And some people say that's when human life starts. Well, I don't uh, believe in that. I mean, uh, people's heart stops every once in a while. They get a heart attack and their heart isn't beating. So they're not human? No, they're human. You don't need a heartbeat. You're human when you have the, the uh, DNA of, of human beings and, and the fertilized egg has got all the DNA it needs. So it's a human being. So now how do we get into um, uh, evictionism means that you have a right to evict, but not to kill. Well, of course not to kill because it's a human being. You're not allowed to kill innocent human beings, but it's a trespasser. The baby is a trespasser. I mean, uh, take the case of rape. It's easy to see trespass there. Woman is walking down the street, she gets grabbed, she gets impregnated, and now there's this person growing inside of her. Well, if that's not a trespasser, I don't know what a trespasser is. Well, what do you have a right to do if, uh, if Liam comes into my house and, and he sits there? Well, uh, he's innocent. Uh, I don't have a right to shoot him, but I have a right to evict him. Well, the, there's this person growing inside the woman and she owns her body. Uh, she homesteaded long before the baby. The baby is uh, three months old and she's 25 years old. She was, she beat him to her body. She owns that body. She has a right to say who stays inside her body and who doesn't. Now, you might say, well, what about ordinary intercourse? Because there aren't that many babies who eventuate from rape. Well, even in uh, ordinary intercourse, uh, you know, the idea is that the mother invited the baby in. And therefore, you know, if I invite you to my house, I have to keep you there for nine months. That's a problem. Uh, also, another problem is an invitation requires two people, an invitor and an invitee. Well, at the time of sexual intercourse, there was no invitee. 
because the baby doesn't come around until the fertilized egg uh, appears and, and intercourse occurs. And then it takes a half hour, an hour or five hours. I'm not sure for the sperm to wiggle its way up toward the egg. Only then is there an invitee long after intercourse. So intercourse cannot be uh, interpreted as an invitation. And even if it were, that doesn't mean you stay there for nine months. I invite you to my house for dinner, you know, and I start hinting at around 10 o'clock, you should leave. You can't say, well, I'm staying here nine months. So those would be four or five areas where I disagree with Murray. So um, on evictionism, if, I'm, if I remember correctly, you said something about uh, partial ownership, as in the parent is a guardian of the fetus or the baby. Is that correct? Or am I thinking of someone else? Yeah, um, well, this isn't so much on evictionism. This is more um, uh, child, uh, the re proper relationship of children and parents. And um, what's going on there? Um, I, I think parents can't own their children. Children should be owners but they, they can own the right to uh, be their guardians, right? So I think the proper relationship between a parent and a child is um, the, the parent is the guardian. And, and, you know, in land, once you own the land, you own the land. You can be an absentee landowner. You don't have to keep mixing your labor with the land forever, right? Look, right now I have a car. It's parked downstairs. Uh, I'm not mixing my labor with it, but if you come and take my car, you're stealing my car. But with children, you have to keep homesteading them. Namely, you have to keep feeding them, right? So uh, you would have an obligation to feed them if you wanted to stay as their guardian. Now, this brings up the question, well, suppose, um, suppose parents come home from the hospital with a newborn baby and they leave the baby in the crib and they never feed the baby and the baby dies. Did they commit a crime? Well, a, a basic element of libertarian theory is there are no positive obligations. So you might think, well, they have no obligation to um, feed the baby, let the baby die. But um, I disagree with that. I think they do have an obligation to bring, they don't have to feed the baby, but if they don't want to feed the baby, they have to bring the baby to a church or a synagogue or an orphanage or, or I don't know what, a hospital, something like that, where there'll be other people taking care of the baby. Uh, is it possible to um, uh, have a, a, what do you call it, a, um, a screen? I want to draw something for you good people. Uh, you yeah, I, th I think Liam, you have to allow him to do that, right? You're muted, by the way. Yeah, you have to give me permission to do that. I will grant you permission right now. Here, let's see. Allow. I believe you should be able to now. I will also. You can uh, I don't it. see. You have to uh, share I, your screen. You share your screen. Uh, and it how lets do you... I? Uh, let me see if I can share my screen. Ah, there it goes. Okay, I got share screen. Host disabled participant screen sharing. So you have Wait, to allow see. me. Uh, right now, you're not allowing me to do it. Oh, there you go. You guys have to do something. Have you done it? <laughs> uh, yeah, I think you did. Okay. Now, here's the question. Uh, here is a, a bagel or a donut. And here's area A and here's area B and here's area C. Do I have a right to homestead land in this proportion? Just the bagel, leaving open the uh, hole in the middle or, or one square mile in the middle? And the answer forthcoming from me is no. I don't have a right to homestead in that way. Why not? Because then I'll be controlling, and this is before there were tunnels and there were no bridges and there were no helicopters, nothing, right? You with me? Yeah, I don't have a right to homestead in, in the format of the, the bagel, because then I would be controlling area A without ever having homesteaded it. And, you know, just as uh, what is it, um, uh, nature of abhors a vacuum, libertarianism abhors unowned land. Our ultimate goal is every square inch should be owned by somebody. We don't want to have the tragedy of the commons. We don't want to have, God forbid, government ownership of land. we got to privatize it. My motto is, 
If it moves, privatize it. If it doesn't move, privatize it. Since everything either moves or doesn't move, you privatize everything. So we got to privatize A. But this guy, this rascal B, won't let people in. So, so he is precluding or forestalling, right? He is guilty of a crime by doing that. Uh, he's got to allow people to have a little path through here and maybe through here also and wherever anyone wants to get. He's got to allow, if he wants, he should homestead A and then there'll be no problem. And if he doesn't homestead A, he's got to allow other people in and, and they got to get in and out. They just can't get in and he traps them in there and he can't preclude them from getting out. So he is precluding or forestalling them. Now let's get back to that baby in the, in the uh, crib. What are those parents doing? They are precluding other people from homesteading that kid. Other people want to go and take care of that kid. Other people want to be uh, the guardian of that kid. Other people want to adopt that kid. So when I tell those parents, you're committing murder by uh, keeping that kid in, in um, I, I think I'm finished with the. Uh, oh, yeah. This. So now I, I see you guys again. Um, what, what those parents are guilty of doing is something akin to what the bagel guy is doing or the donut guy is doing, namely precluding other people from something that they no longer own. Because now look, you can't own the baby, but you can own the guardianship rights to the baby. And the only way to own the guardianship rights to the baby is to feed the baby. And if you stop feeding the baby, you're no longer the guardian. Guardian is an honorific. You have to keep earning it. Not like land where you can be the absentee guardian or the car or, or something like that. So that would be my analysis of, um, of um, uh, that objection to libertarianism. People would say, well, you don't favor, um, you don't uh, uh, adhere to uh, positive obligations and now we'll have a starving baby. That would be an embarrassment. So I had to concoct a um, bagel to answer that question when I was doing my work on, uh, on abortion. And by the way, I, I, I'm coming out with two different books on abortion. One, uh, all previous, I, I must have written maybe 15 articles attacking everybody who disagreed with me. And a lot of people disagree with me, including uh, Murray. Uh, and I, I attacked Murray on this and you know several other people, maybe 15 other people. Um, so each book uh, has got maybe um, 15 uh, uh, criticisms of me against people who disagreed with me. Because I think this is the correct libertarian view and, and pro-life and pro-choice are just wrong. So what my thoughts on the whole thing with the donut and relationship, relationship to evictionism and then with the children, like you said, uh, if you're preventing a child, you know, let's say a five-year-old child from getting food and not giving them shelter and they die, uh, as a result, you're precluding them from someone else's ownership and in the sense of them stepping in and being a moral actor and a guardian for them. So what I was wondering is what the difference with evictionism would be, because the way I would see it is that uh, if they have, if the child has a, a positive obligation for food and for shelter, then as a fetus, the only way for them to get food and shelter would be in the womb, unless you have, you know, like a, some sort of external womb, some sort of artificial womb, or, you know, some sort of womb transferal, which, you know, obviously that's outside of our realm of possibility right now. But if you did have that, I would say that uh, you definitely can utilize that. And there's nothing wrong with that inherently. Um, but what would, what would the difference in that case be? Are you daring to disagree with me? I, I, I hate you. You're evil. You're a monster. I refuse to speak to you. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. If I were a Randian, I would do that. Uh, they're, they're, they're oh, yeah, really... yeah, yeah. I, I know a lot of Randians. And they oh, yeah. Like, we we run across a couple of Randians. Uh, we know the struggle. <laughs> they're, they're people. No, I'm, I'm just being silly when I say I hate you for disagreeing with me. I, you know, I, I encourage disagreement. Uh, that's the way we get to the truth. I'm a big fan of John Stuart Mill, who said, if you only know your own side of the issue, you don't even know your own side because your own side is uh, defined in tandem with the other side. And if you're totally ignorant of what the other guy is saying, you don't really even know what your own view is. Uh, but I, I, I don't see the, uh, the objection then uh, to e evictionism. Um, uh, what, what I'm saying is that you that the baby is a trespasser, 
That is the unwanted baby is a trespasser. Take the case of rape. It's easy to see that that baby is an innocent trespasser, but a trespasser. And, and we libertarians, uh, we think that you're, uh, you have a right to remove trespasses from your property. And this isn't just the property like your house or your car or your boat. This is your body. And there's somebody growing inside of you. Well, if you can't evict that person, the whole idea of private property rights goes, uh, goes out the window. So I'm not sure where, why, where you and I diverge on, on evictionism, Ben. Yeah, I would be, I'm sort of saying like, from what I understand, your position is after they're born, then you can have a positive obligation to feed them and shelter no, them. No, 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 you never have any positive obligations. We libertarians don't believe in positive obligations, only negative obligation. You have an obligation not to murder. You have an obligation not to steal. You have an obligation not to rape. You have an obligation not to commit fraud. Uh, not to commit a, a fractional reserve banking. The, there are a lot of negative obligations, but you don't have one single solitary positive obligation. You don't have any obligation to feed the poor or to be nice or, or, or anything like that. You can be a nasty person and be a libertarian. Just keep your midst to yourself. Okay, so so baby, what if I worded it as you have a negative obligation uh, to not preclude the uh, fetus from others or the child from others? Well, not the fetus. We're talking about the baby in, in the crib now. Yeah. Right? And you had that it was a very well uh, said. Uh, you said it beautifully. You have a negative obligation not to preclude. Okay? So yes, you have a negative obligation not to preclude. You have your baby in, in the um, uh, crib, in, in, the, in the bedroom, and you're not feeding him. You and your wife are not feeding him. And I want that baby. I want to adopt that baby. Well, if you don't notify me by bringing the baby to an orphanage or whatever hospital, well, then you're a murderer. You, you have violated the negative obligation of not precluding. You've precluded. You're a rotten kid. You shouldn't preclude. Yeah, so I was wondering how that doesn't really apply in the case of a fetus. Because, I mean, in the case of an evictionism, if you're evicting them, then you're depriving them of the food and shelter of the womb. So that's what I I'm see. viewing it as. I see. I see. I, I didn't get it before. Thanks for, for clarifying. Look, um, right now, with present technology, in the first two trimesters, the first six months, if you remove the baby from the womb, I assume the baby dies. Right. In the third trimester... Uh, the seventh, eighth, and ninth month, you can remove the baby. And then, you know, Ron Paul talks about these cases where a baby gets born and they stick the baby in, in a bucket and they let the baby die. Ah, <laughs> it's just, it's just horrible. That, that's not even, uh, that's infanticide. That's not uh, abortion. That's infanticide because once the baby is out of the womb, the baby is an infant, uh, even if he's in the eighth month. So let's take a baby in the third month. If it would be possible to remove the baby and safely, well, then you have to remove the baby safely so that somebody else can um, uh, adopt the baby. But I'm assuming, uh, I might be wrong, but I think the, the medical technology at present is such that in the first six months, you remove the baby, the baby dies. So there's no question of um, precluding or anyone adopting. Uh, the precluding only comes with infants when you take them home from the hospital and you put them in, in the crib. Mm -hmm. And then you don't feed them, which is, you know, pretty grotesque. So you, would you say it's more so about like the time frame, like because you can't, because there's no sort of immediate adoption available, that's the reason evictionism is, is acceptable as opposed to, you know, like starving the baby in the crib? Well, the whole issue doesn't arise with, with uh, the baby in the first six months. Now, the, take the baby in the eighth month. Now the baby, uh, you evict the baby in the eighth month. Well, what happens with that baby? You have to bring that baby to uh, right away to, a, or you have to notify a, an, a, a, an orphanage. And the orphanage people have to be standing right outside the uh, operating room where the baby comes out. And then they whisk the baby into uh, whatever, you know, some sort of, um, um, uh, I don't know, oxygen tent or whatever to keep the baby going. And then the new parents take over the baby. So I'm still not sure why you, you're you're rejecting the one true argument here. <laughs> so uh, unfortunately, <laughs> unfortunately, we don't have much time. 
Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to. I don't like to take this forward because I'm afraid this will actually turn into a debate with the way with the way Ben is now opinionated. Ben is. But, uh, you know, I think oh, yeah. it is. It is nice to show that we can disagree. Like no, I think I we wanna... all. Yeah, I, I, I've been like working on this We're sort of thing, and I just wanted to hear like your direct responses to the on. questions I had. So. I definitely so, appreciate look, uh, hearing this. Then I've, I've written, uh, just Google me and uh, evictionism or Google me and abortion and you'll get 15 articles that are out there. So look, um, uh, I, uh, by the way, I promised you guys a half hour, but I was late. So I gave you a whole hour, but let's do this in a month or two. And in the meantime, Ben, do some homework, read some of the stuff and, and maybe you'll come up with other objections or maybe you'll, uh, you'll agree with me, uh, but whatever it is, we'll have fun. Oh, yeah. oh uh, let me, uh, since we're at the end, uh, let me just put in a commercial announcement. I'm a professor at Loyola University. I'm looking for students like you guys who are very bright and interested in these issues. And uh, it's not just me. We have uh, uh, three out of three of the economics department are all Austro-Libertarians. Plus we have a few other Austrians and, we, uh, and Libertarians. And we have a few at uh, um, next door Tulane. So, um, if you're thinking of going to college, uh, think of coming to Loyola University as well. Well, uh, thank you, Walter, for coming on. Thank you so much to Walter Blanc. Uh, thank you, everybody, for watching. Uh, and we'll see you in a couple months, I guess. Thank you, Walter. Take care. Thanks for having me, guys. Have a great night. Bye. Bye. Night. Send me a URL for this. Oh, sure. yeah. I think we can send it right now. Yep. Oh, well, he All right. Well, thank you everybody so much for tuning into the stream. Hopefully, we will have uh, Walter back on stream soon. He is always a pleasure to have. Such a distinct personality. He, his storytelling is great on stream. We love having him, and we want to personally thank all of you in chat for watching the stream. And that is it. Thank you everybody. Have a nice night.